Hey guys, um, we've we've watched Kevin do this for two weeks now, and he is not exaggerating. Um, I walk in, and I see this this place that is so much for so people, or for so many people. Um, I see that it's so usually just vibrant and full of life, and it is empty and it is cold. Um, and it, honestly, it, it, it hurts. It will hurt you to be here as it is because this is not what it's supposed to be like. Um, and that is a feeling that pervades all of life now. And we have to deal with that. You know, we can't just ignore it and say that we are too blessed to be stressed. We don't have any problems. Um, COVID is a problem um, for some far more than others, but everyone is affected by it. And when I reached out to Kevin about possibly, you know, teaching you all, it was in December. And nothing is the same as it was. Not life, not the world, not my message. Um, the message that I brought to Kevin initially is nowhere near what I'm going to present to you today. Um, and it is because of God in his omnipotence who knew what was coming that I have what I have now. Um, this message is for this time period, this time in history, this time in our church, this time in our lives. This is now. This is for now. Um, so I'm going to pray um, you at home, if you would, bow your heads and just, just pray and just ask the Lord to give you what he has for you because this is for you. This is for you sitting on the couch, sitting in a chair, sitting at the dinner table, sitting wherever you are in your home. This is for you. Um, so if you would bow with me. Father, you are good and you are kind. Uh, Lord, you have seen this from the beginning. Lord, you have known that I would be standing here in this moment. Um, Father, everything has happened according to your preordained circumstances. Your eternal knowledge and decree, Lord, have brought us to this point, Lord, and you are good. And, and it, is a, it is serving a purpose, Lord, and I pray that you would use these words, these, this feeble offering that I have to bring, Lord, that you would that you would work through it, Father, because this is your truth, this is your word, and we want to come before you and ask that you would be with us, that you would speak to us in this pandemic, Lord, in this new normal that we find ourselves, Lord, that you would show us that you are still God, uh, Lord, when it feels like you are far away, when it feels like you are silent. God, we pray that you would make yourself known to us in the way that you love us through this, Lord. Uh, Father, help us to be together as a church as much as we can through this uh, through this thing, Lord, with the social distancing and with the telecommunication, Lord. We pray that you would help us to reach out to one another and to love one another, to love one another well. Jesus, it's your name we ask these things, Father, because you are worthy, Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, when I grew up in church, it was... You know, very 
very religious. Like I, I grew up, I learned, I was in Sunday school. My mom honestly went into labor the, with me on a Sunday night while in church. Um, so I can, I could tell you all of the right answers. I knew all of the answers to the questions, the Sunday school answers, if you would, to everything, right? But I really didn't understand it. Um, and it was only after I came to really understand and really to learn more about theology that I could tell you with confidence that I was not regenerate in my youth, in my early 20s, in my mid-20s, on up until my late 20s. I was not following Jesus. I was not what I would profess to be, right? Um, and so I really want to emphasize theology. I want to emphasize the great doctrines of the past. I want to emphasize how necessary and how vital that is. Because theology um, is a way to have a deeper understanding, to really learn more and really learn why things are. You know, um, It gives you a deeper understanding. And a deeper understanding leads to a deeper appreciation, and I feel a greater knowledge and a greater capacity for knowledge, right? So the more that we know, the more that we understand, the more we can know, the more boxes we have to put things in, okay? So every, every amount, every bit of knowledge that you have is in a box. Um, it can go in experience. It can be a past, um, it can be a past place, any, you know, any past noun, a person, place, or thing, you can have these, in these information boxes to put things into, to put new information into. And it is that way because we have to have that, right? We have to understand things. We have to know things in order to know more things. And it's like traveling abroad, right? So it's a terrible analogy. Um, but our experience is drastically different if we actually know the language than if we don't, right? And see, I feel that our enjoyment can be greatly increased if we have an understanding of what's going on around us. Um, if we have this categorical framework, as it were, to put all of this new information in, this new assimilation of the information, right? Um, so, now, I have never been to another country, um, but I've watched a lot of TV shows about people going to other countries. And, you know, the language barrier can always be entertaining, especially when it comes to dining, right? We've all seen the episode where the, you know, the stick in the mud, the fuddy-duddy goes to a restaurant and just orders something off of the menu or takes the advice of the waiter, the maitre d' or whatever, and it comes out and it's just something, you know, ghastly. But... That happens, you know, that happens in real life, not just, you know, stere uh, stereotypically in movies. Um, for example, take fries and chips, okay? They both start out as potatoes, right? So they differ only categorically, you know, the way they're cut, the way they're cooked, the way they're seasoned. Um, so in order... Like, to really understand things, we have to start with what's a potato. So we can say, well, this is a potato, this is a French fry, 
or this is a chip in Britain. And none of the differences matter if at first we don't know what a potato is. You follow? So we have to have this base knowledge in order to fit all of the rest of the knowledge into. Um, and such as it is with theology, right? We can learn all of these great and big and wonderful theological phrases and concepts. We can read about them in abstract terms. And we can look into all the theoretical applications of them. But if we don't see them in Scripture, if they don't help us understand God, then we have gained absolutely nothing from them. Um, I see um, theology can give us categories, right, to fit our fundamental knowledge into. So we start, right, we learn these terms and concepts, and it's all good, right? We can tell the difference between pre- and post-millennialism, amillennialism. We can tell all of these differences, right? But if we don't understand who God is, it doesn't help us. It really doesn't benefit us if we don't start from the source. Like, we don't start with a fundamental knowledge of God. Um, in the text I want to look at, which is Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Um, the author is writing to this church to encourage them to endure in the midst of sufferings, right? He's writing to them to give them a firm place for their faith to rest in the midst of um, civil and community struggles, right? He's giving them a firm place for their faith to rest when it seems like their world is falling apart. Um, he's, not, he's writing to them to give them categories to fit their fundamental knowledge into but he's writing also to them to give them categories to reconcile their experiences with their fundamental knowledge, right? Um, nothing causes us to question our fundamental understanding of who God is and the character of God like suffering. And we're experiencing that more now than ever as far as we are concerned. Nothing, like, we always, like, everybody questions why, God, why? You know, why are you doing this? Why are these things happening, right? And we have to understand who God is and the character of God before we can really start to fit those pieces together. Um, and so I want to show you a theological concept. It's clear evidences in Scripture in that the concept provides the backbone of this text of Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. Um, and lastly, I want to really show you that this is a place for our faith to rest when the world's falling apart. And I wrote these words three weeks before any of this happened with COVID-19. So this is right now. This is the time. This is the place for our world falling apart. Okay, so the concept that I want to discuss with you guys is this idea of concurrence, right? Uh, the Oxford Dictionary defines concurrence as the fact of two or more events or circumstances happening or existing at the same time. So while A is happening, B is happening. Um, an example of this would be Michelangelo working on the statue of David. Um, you know, Michelangelo, it started in 1501 and it lasted until I think 1503 is when he finished it. Um, so in the 1500s, Michelangelo would use mallets and uh, an assortment of chisels. 
And so what would happen is he would take the chisels and the mallets and he would chip away from the sculpture that is within the marble. And uh, this is the mindset behind what's called subtractionist sculpting. And what that means is that the artist would see the statue within the medium, within the marble in this case, and he would remove the excess, remove the substrate from the material, from, from the statue within. And um, what would happen this, like, we, we think of it as just, well, you know, he's just whacking on it with a hammer and some chisels. But what's happening is it's, it's a concurrence. It's a concurrence of actions that produce this effect. Um, the mallet strikes the chisel, the chisel strikes the, the, uh, the marble, and the marble it absorbs the blows, right? And so what makes this a concurrence is, is that the chisel and the mallet are, and the marble, are all inanimate objects. So they have no ability to react or to see past their initial action, right? So all the mallet wants to do is hit the chisel. All the chisel wants to do or can do is hit the marble. And all the marble wants to do is exist. So they have this individual goal that happens that is unrelated to the whole. Like none of those three things, if they were able to think, could see the end result because they were only focused on their immediate action, right? So only Michelangelo could see the end result, right? Now, I've tried to sculpt before, and I, eh, I do okay. I'm artistic. Um, but I've never been able to do subtractionist. I have to mold with things that are pliable like clay. So if I mess up, which happens often, I can just fix it. But with subtractionist sculpting, then if you make a mistake, you're done, or you have to alter it. So... Michelangelo has to be able to see what he's going to do. So what he did, and this is historical, is that he took a wax model of David, of the finished product of David, and he submerged it fully in water. And he would let out water that would drain the level far enough for him to be able to see what it is that he was going to sculpt. And so what he did is he would only sculpt is what was exposed. And after he finished that, he would let the water out and he would move on down. Um, so Michelangelo saw the hole, like he saw what David's feet were going to look like before he ever started carving on the crown of his head. And that is a concurrence of actions. Michelangelo carved David, this end result, this end goal that Michelangelo had in mind, he carved through a series of concurrent actions with mallet and various points and forms of chisels. Um, and only Michelangelo intended the whole thing, right? They all, all of the tools and everything, they only had this one simple solitary goal, each one individually. And only Michelangelo was able to piece all of that together. It was all happening. Every blow that fell, every chip off of the marble that flew off fell by Michelangelo's direction. And see, this same idea, this same concept of concurrence happens with theology, and it is a mirror of what happens with us and God. Um, Louis Burkhoff writes, Concurrence may be defined as the cooperation of, 
of the divine power with all subordinate powers, according to the pre-established laws of their operation, causing them to act and to act precisely as they do. And see, the thought carries that God carries out his, um, his providential decree. So the things that God says before he created the world that will happen, God decrees what will happen. God brings that about by concurrent acts in time. Or to put it another way, God uses means to carry out in the present what he des- like predestined in eternity past. Okay? Um, R.C. Sproul puts it this way. In essence, concurrent says that two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. Um, relating it to Michelangelo, the temporal means are the mallets, the chisels, and the marble. And with the extemporal plan being the model of David that Michelangelo had in his mind and then transferred to wax and later to stone. So um, God has a plan, this, this decree that he is bringing about in time by concurring acts in now. Okay. Um, see, Michelangelo like struck every stroke of marble to produce an out- outcome. Like everything that he did was to produce a given outcome. And God is the same way. Everything that happens in time happens according to God's preordained plan and for a purpose. So it happens in eternity past, and then it is for a purpose. Everything, all of history is leading to one great glorious purpose that we will get to. Um, but, you know, all like I said in the beginning, none of this matters. I can tell you concurrence. I can tell you all of these things. I can tell you that these these doctrines, these decrees, all of this stuff, all of these are just words. They're banging symbols, okay? None of this matters if I can't show you in the scriptures. And so I want you to turn to Genesis 45. Uh, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. Um, so we all know the story of Joseph, right? That he grew up his father's favorite. Um, Jacob, or Israel at this point, was not um, covert in his favoritism, right? He said, you're my favorite. Here's a coat of many colors. And Joseph went and rubbed it in his brother's nose. You can only imagine that a younger brother would do that. But that's subjecture. So, um, Now, obviously, his older brothers were jealous. They were jealous to the point of murder. In fact, they were going to kill him, but they decided not to, so they were going to sell him into slavery. Okay, And so... There is all of the sagas with Potiphar and his wife, the baker and the cupbearer being left in jail, being left in jail again, or being put in jail, being left in jail. Um, and see, these were all concurrent events. Like in the time, like we can look at the story of Joseph and we can say, okay, well, this is what God's doing. Like we can see all of these individual pieces that are being put in place or being taken out of place, as it were. Um, but Joseph couldn't see that. So in the moment, Joseph said, what's happening? You know, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we can know this, and we can look, and we can see that God was doing something. And Joseph, at the end of it all, can see that too. Um, in 45 verses 5 through 8, 
It reads, Joseph's talking to his brothers. Uh, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these last two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. See, we see in this text that Joseph is telling his brothers to not be upset with themselves, right? Because they weren't the ones who sent him to Egypt, right? He says that God sent me to Egypt. You didn't send me here, but God did. Um, see, but if we look back at the story of Joseph, it's pretty obvious that his brothers did, in fact, send him vicariously to Egypt. He, they sold him into slavery. So they were the cause of him being in Egypt, right? That is clear from the text. So how then can Joseph say, you didn't send me here, but God did, when it was blatantly clear that they did? See, it seems as if Joseph is trying to pin the troubles that he had on God. See, but we know that he's not because in Genesis 50, after again, uh, or after the death of Jacob, then he's talking to his brothers again because his brothers were trying to they were getting a little nervous. And you, know, you can see that they were because Jacob was still you know, completely devoted to Joseph. So as long as and they thought that, that Jacob would, was offering kind of like a blanket protection. So when Jacob dies, they're like, oh no, like, now that he's gone, he was our protection. Joseph may exact revenge for all that we put him through. Um, So they come to him, they're timid, they're even a little bit manipulative, and you can see it. They, they bring their recently deceased father into their plea for mercy, right, which is just cold. Um, they're trying to avoid retribution, but Joseph in turn offers them kindness, but he doesn't hold them guiltless. Uh, in verse 20, he says, As for you, his brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, he's telling them that their intentions were evil, right? But God's intention for their evil intentions was for a ser served a good purpose, a benevolent purpose. See, God Joseph is pointing out the fulfillment of the providential decree that the messianic line would continue, would continue, would continue until the birth of Christ. See, because if Joseph had not been sent to Egypt, then everyone would have died in the famine because if his brothers were coming from Canaan to Egypt for food, then there was obviously no food in Canaan. And so if the brothers die, Judah dies. And if Judah dies, the line dies because Judah was in the line, right? <clears throat> So God sent Jacob or Joseph to Egypt to save lives, right? To save all the lives of however many people were saved and to carry on the Messianic line. But was that their purpose? Was that the purpose of Joseph's 10 brothers? 
did they have any of that in mind when they sold him to the slave, to the slave traders? Obviously not, right? They wanted him to experience hardships. They only wanted him to have a slave's existence. They wanted him, I'm sure, to die in slavery because that was their intent. They wanted him dead, but they just couldn't do it. So they sold him into slavery, hoping that he would have just this terrible time of it. But God intentionally took the tragedy of Joseph's life to save countless lives and eventually save mankind. And see, that same thing happens throughout the Bible. That God takes tragedy and uses it to build beauty. And so we now turn to Job chapter 1, if you would. So we're going to look at this, um, starting in verse 7, going through verse 8. Um, the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So, God's baiting Satan by offering up Job. See, we know from 1 Peter 5, 8 that Satan was going to and fro walking up and down on the earth to cause destruction, right? Because he goes around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. Um, so God just throws Job out there. Job, uh, God talks up his good points that he fears God and shuns evil. Um, and then he waits for Satan to bite. And Satan does bite and God gives all that Job possesses into Satan's hand. Job responds by saying, the Lord, has give, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then God does it again, as if it wasn't enough. Um, in Job 2, two, two, two through 3, we read, And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. See, then Satan strikes him with boils and sores from the sole of his foot unto the top of his head. Job responds to his wife who says, his wife comes to him and says, Do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job responds in 2.10, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? See, after each of Job's responses, the text says that Job did not sin, which means Job did not lie. But we know from the text that Satan the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans were all acting against Job. See, each party played a separate and distinct role in the tragedy of Job chapters 1 and 2. But what um, Satan wanted to hurt Job and to invalidate all of God's confidence in him. Um, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans wanted to gain all of Job's possessions for themselves, right? Job had a lot of stuff. And they said, I want that for my stuff. I want that to be my stuff. And so they went and they took it all. 
Um, but what of God? Obviously, God was the one over all of it, right? Nothing happens without God's approval or allowance. So what was God's purpose? What was God trying to get at in the story of Job? In the tragedy of Job, what was happening? See, these are questions that we have. These are questions that we have now. What is God doing? What is God allowing to happen? Why is it happening the way it's happening? And the answer is we don't know. Job never knew. But after three chapters of God rebuking Job in chapters 38 through 41, Job confesses, Kevin preached on this a couple of weeks ago, Job confesses in 42, 2 through, two through 6, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's the words of God to Job. Therefore, I have uh, Job's kind of recounting it to God. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me, also the words of God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, in the story of Joseph, we are given a reason for the suffering endured. We're shown that it wasn't meaningless. His suffering resulted in sustaining of the world's population, right? In the eventual Messiah. But in the story of Job, we're given no reason for his suffering. But we are given an exaltation of God's sovereignty over his creation. Honoring the fact that he rules all things in wisdom and power. In Job 38 through 41, it is just God showing his might, showing his omnipotence, showing his omniscience, showing his rule over all things. You know, revisiting Michelangelo here in the statue of David, the marble would be having the same feelings as Job. It would feel the pain. It would feel that the pain was pointless and meaningless because all it was doing was absorbing blows. You know, from its point of view, Michelangelo only wanted to break it. The mallet and chisels were causing the destruction, but they were ultimately beings used by Michelangelo to break down the marble. See, we see from the outset that Job um, attributes all the trials and tribulations and loss to God. He looks beyond the temporal means to the extemporal impetus behind the means. He doesn't understand, but he doesn't only see the chisels and mallets as it were. He doesn't see just the Sabaeans, just the Chaldeans. He sees that God is doing this. He couldn't comprehend the strokes themselves, but he knew that there was an artist behind it. See, when we, fail to, uh, when we fail to find a reason behind our sufferings, we can know that the strokes are being directed and landed by one who has a plan for them. And that brings us to our text. Um, in our, uh, if you would, turn to Hebrews 12, 3 to 11. We'll read this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle, um, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, in writing these things, he's showing them this principle of concurrence. See, the first the writer tells them to consider him. Consider Christ. See, not only do we consider him in time, we have to consider him before time. We have to consider him in eternity. See, we see this, this idea of concurrence um, when we look in ch- Acts chapter 2, P- uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. In uh, Acts two twenty three, Peter preaches, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we see that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God, Yet he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, this is the concurrence of actions, right? God and man operating from different motives. This is the encouragement for us because God has delivered him up for us. God, before time, said, I will put a redeemer in time to redeem my people. And so God delivered him up for us. See, we consider Christ. We consider the manner of love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God that we even have access to God through Christ. See, he's showing them, the author is showing them that God is treating them as sons and as such is disciplining them. Um, See, God is using these persecutions to discipline them. See, we think of discipline as correction. Like we have this default mode to think of this as correction. But we have to think of it as more of like a holistic training, right? Um, As we would our very own children, right? Um, with a goal in mind. We discipline our children for a purpose. We train our children for a purpose. There's always a purpose behind everything that we do as parents for our children because, as the text put it, what seems best to us, we try to steer our children to. And so he makes mention of this in the text, telling them, that the earthly fathers discipline as, as seem best to them, but there is no perfect parent, right? We all have mistakes. Every parent in this, in this room, in your room, uh, have mistakes. We have regrets that we all think about. Um, but there's always a purpose. There's a purpose behind what we do as parents. Um, See, discipline is always 
oriented toward a future outcome. It's future oriented. We can't, like we may take, we may discipline, we may train things from the past. Like we don't do preventative discipline. Like I'm not going to discipline my children for something they're going to do tomorrow, right? I have to do, I have to react to what they do. But it says that God's not that way. The text says that God disciplines us for our good, right? For our good. God sees everything from beginning to end. Obviously, from eternity past to eternity future, God knows it all and God is there. So God's goal in disciplining his children is future-oriented, grounded in the past, grounded in this redemptive history in the past. And so in verse 11, we see this purpose. Um, We see God's future purpose for his people, for his children. And that is sharing in his holiness. So God disciplines us for our good to share in his holiness. So God is training us. God is doing this holistic training for the purpose of our being holy, our sharing in his holiness. Right? And it's really great for our faith when the Bible validates the Bible. It affirms the Bible. Um, See, when we're looking at this idea of fatherly discipline in Hebrews 12, the same sentiment was written about by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 14-16. Listen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, what Peter is saying is setting the stage for what our text is saying. Peter, quoting Leviticus, tells us to be holy in our conduct. Hebrews tells us that God is shaping us into holiness. So we are getting a command in Leviticus and then later Peter, you know, be holy as I am holy. And then we get the impetus behind our being made holy, which is God disciplining us. So it's kind of like a prayer that Augustine prayed. Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. So God, tell me to do what you want me to do. Tell me to do what what you have determined for me to do, but enable me to do it. And that is our prayer daily. God, I we we have to we have to do things. We have to be obedient to Christ, but we can't do that on our own. We are sinners. So we have to pray for empowerment, encouragement from the Holy Spirit to get us to that point. Not to be justified, but from justification. Let's get that straight. Um, Holiness is clearly the goal in both texts. See, Peter goes on to say that we achieve this holiness because we've been born of an imperishable seed um, by the living and abiding word of God. Our text says that we achieve this holiness because we have been brought under the fatherhood of God. Our, the discipline gets us to this point, to share in His holiness. So in both cases, ours, our being children of God is the chief impetus behind our being made holy, or being made into Christ's image. See, which should give us great hope because it is because that God loves us and is receiving us that we have to be made holy. See, we learn in Hebrews twelve fourteen. That without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So if we are not holy, then we will not see God. 
we know that we will never achieve holiness in this life, never fully holy, but we are being sanctified daily. Um, whatever current persecutions were occurring against this church, the writer is giving them a place for their faith to stand. See, God is preparing them for us himself. God is readying them to enter his kingdom. And so... In the story of Joseph and in our text, we're given reasons behind the suffering. We're given just we're given answers to the questions of why. You know, in Joseph, we are shown that God was sustaining life. God was sustaining the messianic line through the sufferings of Joseph. Joseph suffered for the salvation of the people of the ancient world and the messianic line as a pointer to Christ's suffering for his people. Um, in our text, we are seeing that they are suffering these persecutions as a training for God's kingdom, as a loosening of, the, of our bonds to this world. Like They are having to endure all of these civil and communal trials to get them to long for home. But the story of Job is different and more like our own. See, we experience pain and sorrow in the vast majority of the time. It seems as if it's just God being mean and vindictive or worse yet, him being absent. Um, so what do we do with that? What are we to think of God when our world falls apart? How do we reconcile the promises that God has made to us in Romans 8.28? That all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. How do we reconcile that great and glorious and wonderful promise with the prophetic warning of Jesus that we will have tribulation in the world, that we will have trouble in the world? How do we reconcile it with COVID-19 and the economic shutdown, the social shutdown, the ecclesiastical, the church shutdown. How do, we, how do we understand that? How do we view that through the lens of God promising good to his people? I mean, these are real questions, guys. We have to know and we have to cherish this idea of concurrence, but we can't do that if we don't understand the character of God. And see, what's happening is that God is good. God is sovereign over all creation. God is holy and righteous. And God's purposes for his people are good and they are eternal. So in Romans 8, 28 through 30, um, I don't actually have that on my little sheet, so... Turn with me, if you will, like y'all are here. Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
and those whom he also foreknew, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's called the golden chain of redemption. And that means that before eternity, in eternity past, before God created the world, God set his love on his people. And God in eternity future will set his glory on his people. We will be glorified in Christ in the last day. What happens in between is sanctification. We have been justified. We have been, we could never be more right with God than we are the moment we place our trust in Christ because it's Christ's atonement that makes us right with God. And we have to look at our troubles and our tribulation through this idea of concurrence that God is shaping us and molding us into the image of Christ. Verse 29 says that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That saying that from the moment we place our trust in Christ until we die and go to be with Him, everything in the middle is sanctification. And that is our being made more in like Christ. And so we have to look at what happens to us as God shaping us into the image of Christ and growing our affections for home because this isn't home. And if anything, we are being shown in these days that this isn't home because like, we miss this. We miss the gathering together. Zoom is good. Zoom is not in person. We long for gathering together. We long for being together. God, I feel, is allowing this to happen. One of the reasons, no one can know the mind of God. One of the reasons is to make us long for heaven, to make us long for glory, to make us long for unbroken fellowship with one another. But in the meantime, we're not there. We are here and we are apart. So may God give us grace to see this as an act of concurrence to make us like Christ. That though we can't see Him, we know that He is active and He is making us like Christ. And that His actions in time are for a purpose and from a plan. And may God give us grace to kiss the wave that throws us on the rock of ages. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which is our great hope. Uh, Father, may we, be, may we be subjected to the truth of your word and not be filled with fright uh, daily as the numbers rise, as we feel more and more isolated. Lord, every one of us has experienced pain and suffering and sorrows, some far more than others. Lord, but we pray, God, that you let us not see them as the end in themselves. Lord, but that they are being used by a loving and gracious Father who is training his children to receive his benevolent blessing in eternity. Lord, we know that you are good. Your word tells us, tells us that you are good and that you are kind. 
and we experience it, Lord. Help us to experience and to trust more and more daily as we grow in the knowledge of you. Lord, help us to use this time that you have given us with our families wisely. Uh, Lord, help the fathers to lead, help them to lead well. Help the mothers to love and to cherish the time with their children. Lord, help the children to learn and to be obedient. Help the grandparents to love and to be faithful. Lord, help the friends to be open to one another. Help them to be Help them to just be here, Lord. We all need each other, Lord, but we need you most of all. And we know, Father, that you who promise are faithful. Lord, in your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.